Scared money don't make money. You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. All right, everyone, we are back following Christmas. It's been a while. Doug, it's, it's been a long time. It's been 17 days. I apologize. 17 days. You haven't worked any of them. You've been off your full-time job for months now, um, but we're back. <laughs> for about a week, um, and <laughs> I, as many of you can probably tell by listening to this, I'm a, still a little congested, unfortunately got sick, and I'm just getting over it now, so we didn't do a, a post-signing day podcast, but we'll have one out soon, just getting back into the swing of things, uh, right now recording on the 27th of December, Friday, so putting in a little extra time right before the weekend. No days off here at uh, the Inside the Tunnel podcast, especially with the Belk Bowl coming up. Especially with the Belk Bowl coming up before the Belk Bowl. <laughs> Doug, Christmas, how was it? Christmas was good. Uh, you know, got a lot of... All I get is new clothes nowadays, so that's what I got. Um, oh, I did get this nice Amazon Fire tablet. Ooh. So I can Very watch. Lovely. So I can watch television on airplanes now. Very cool. Yes. Uh, I got a bunch of boxers. Thank you, Mama Sis. And yeah, other than that, great to see the family still up in New York right now. And I will be making my way down to the Belk Bowl in about two days' time. You didn't get a number 97 Virginia Tech jersey? I did not. Are you <laughs> for Oscar Shadley? Is that what is what is Oscar Bradbury? <laughs> He's 91. Yeah, number ninety one. <laughs> Look, I would I would accept either Oscar, Oscar That's and true. Oscar. Uh, they should make a mini series on that. You know how they do the the painting now, uh, the mini series Virginia Tech releases. They have select players with a canvas, and they're painting certain things about the football program. It's kind of entertaining, but I, I think everyone would prefer an Oscar and Oscar show. But I digress. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. So moving into the Belk Bowl, um, we're going to be working on our preview today. Virginia Tech, Kentucky, not Mississippi State, not Tennessee. Um, it is Kentucky. And we mentioned it in the podcast from 17 days ago, if everyone remembers from way back when. Everyone should remember. Everyone should remember. Um but Kentucky is a very peculiar team. They run the ball extremely well. They have a very talented wide receiver playing quarterback. And basically what you need to know about this SEC team that is 7-5, and five, their offense has produced 3,422 yards on the ground. Uh, run heavy would be an accurate description to describe this offense, I'd say. Uh, and it's all basically around one player. Um, he happens to be their leading receiver, their leading rusher. And I guess you can call him the leading passer, even, even though I'm sure the other quarterbacks have better passing numbers right now, but he's, he's the quarterback. Um, so Lynn Bowden is the guy, Lynn Bowden. 
not exactly sure which way it's supposed to go there, but um, he's going to be the story pretty much for Kentucky on offense. And again, NFL wide receiver playing quarterback. Um, he's a guy who runs a lot of read options. Essentially, their entire offense is running. Uh, so if you're into that sort of thing, if you're into tough physical football, you're going to get a whole lot of it. Big offensive line. Let's just start talking about this Kentucky offense. I mean, what types of challenges do they present for Bud Foster in his final game as the defensive coordinator for Virginia Tech? The number one thing is definitely probably everybody knows is the whole running quarterback thing that um, Bud Foster's defenses have struggled with over the years. Um, I think Bud Foster takes a lot of flack for that, but I think running quarterbacks give just about everyone issues um, these days. So, you know, Bowden's a really, really good player. He's probably one of the best players Virginia Tech has faced all year, um, at least on the offensive side of the ball. I don't know if there's anybody really that can match him in terms of just pure football ability. Um, So it's just going to be a story of whether they can get him on the ground, you know, around the line of scrimmage. I think keeping them, especially on first and second down where you can, where you can force them into those long third down situations where they're either going to have to take a run the ball and basically take a punt or, you know, (laughs) figure out if, if Bowden can throw the ball a little bit. Um, so I think clearly it's all about stopping him and stopping him enough to win the game. I don't think he's, I think he's good enough where you're not going to be able to shut him completely down. So can you hold them? You know, can he be literally the only guy picking up yards and the rest, the rest of the um, Kentucky offense is shut down, which is kind of what, you know, teams. That's why they're seven and five this year, and not you know ten and two or something better. I mean, he's been really, really good. But Tennessee held him to thirteen points. Arkansas, they only beat Arkansas twenty-four to twenty, and Arkansas was one of the worst teams in the country this year. So um, he's the story. They got a big offensive line that that lets him get ru- rushing yards, even though everybody knows they're going to run the ball. Um, but can you limit him enough so he doesn't just dominate the game? Yeah, and I think when you're talking about an SEC school, you're talking about size and physicality, you know, athleticism at the skill positions. Uh, and, and when I look at this Kentucky team, I do have to admit I am a little concerned. When you look at Bud Foster's defense, you know, an undersized group that can fly around the football field, sure. But a part of the reason that I suspect that Kentucky is seven and five is because week after week they're playing these fellow big defenses that are able to neutralize that offensive line. When you're looking at this defense and you're looking at the front and, you know, Emmanuel Belmar, Taiwan Garbett on the outside, Jared Hewitt and Deshaun Crawford on the interior, you know, are you concerned with their ability to push back that big offensive line of Kentucky and and narrow down those those gaps that they create on offense? Yeah, definitely. I think you touched on Garbett and Belmar, the two defensive ends that I think are going to be just critical because I mean, Bowden's he's still a wide receiver at heart, and they're not going to run him right up the middle over and over again. So a lot of his runs are going to be 
off tackle bouncing to the outside, which is going to put a lot of pressure on the defensive end. Um, they're going to run a lot of read option with the running backs. Um, they play three running backs. AJ Rose is one. Kavasi Smoke is another. Christopher Rodriguez is the third. And if you combine their stats, they've put up some monster numbers as well. So, I mean, just the threat of the read option. We've seen Belmar in particular get sucked inside a little too much. And if that continually happens, you know, they're just going to rip off big yards on the ground over and over again. And um, they put a lot of pressure on you because you kind of, those defensive ends get forced into a tough spot where they have to make a decision on, on where to go. So defensive ends are going to be the big, I think the big place to watch in terms of slowing down the Kentucky running game. Yeah. And we'll, we'll see if they're able to do that. I think, uh, you know, moving forward, with some of the concerns, I have two more, but we'll start with this is safety play from Virginia tech. Now it hasn't been an ideal season by any stretch for Reggie Floyd. Devon Diablo has had his stretches of, of really good play, um, but inconsistent at times. And you would figure that this is going to be a lot of eight man inside the box. Try to, you know, uh, withstand this rushing siege from Kentucky, what what do both Floyd and uh, Diablo have to do to be successful? You mentioned, you know, outside runs. Uh, you know, how how do these safeties be successful against the run? Yeah, they, I mean, you think they played a, those safeties played a lot better kind of in the middle of the year. But, you know, you still think back to the UVA game. They got beat through the air more often in that game. But like the Boston College game where. Um, whatever their quarterback's name was, Anthony Brown, I think is his name, yeah. pulls it and goes right by. Um, you know, Floyd's a guy that has taken a lot of criticism this year. And over the last two years, really, where they can get in the wrong gap. And if you're in the wrong gap and the quarterback pulls it or, or hands it off, it's a big play waiting to happen um, with not a lot of people around to tackle him. So um, I think... They have to be absolutely perfect in what gap they're filling and making the tackle and keeping their leverage and all that 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 goes into what they do in the running game. Where you know, the, you talked about the big offensive line like Garbutt and Belmar and Hewitt and Crawford, they might get swallowed up, Ashby and Hollyfield might get swallowed up, but that's just how the Virginia Tech defense plays and they'll they'll take on the blocker to set up Floyd for the tackle and he's got to be there on time and ready to make the tackle to um to bring him down yeah and I can envision a lot of situations where Floyd is going to be one-on-one with Bowden and of course we saw it against UVA with Bryce Perkins what really tilted that game was the two long runs in that first quarter where he was able to break it on third and longs you know, wide open in the middle of the field. There was no angles for the safeties to make up ground and get to Perkins because they had already taken a different angle. So like you said, it's really important that that initial look that both these safeties are able to see, they're going to have to be able to make that play. And it's going to be especially hard when you're looking, you know, Bryce Perkins, as good as he is in the ACC, you know, Lynn Bowden, a different type of athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a, 
slightly better athlete than Perkins probably. And um, certainly he's had success against some of the SEC's defenses, which, yeah, they're some of the lower level SEC teams. But I think if you, like, if Virginia Tech went out and played Tennessee right now or um, Mississippi State, I'm just looking at teams they lost to, if they played Arkansas, you know, you still kind of feel like it would be a pretty even matchup. It's not like Virginia Tech's any demonstrably better than any of those SEC teams. So going to be a lot of pressure on the safeties there to just get involved in the, in the running game. I mean, I think Kentucky's offense is so one dimensional and how much they run that they know exactly what they're doing and they they know exactly what they're going to, who they're going to block. Their wide receivers are clearly, good enough blocking wide receivers so they're going to have to get off a block and make a play. And then I guess my last concern with the defense as a whole, and we talked about it 17 days ago, but the coaching changes, Justin Hamilton appointed defensive coordinator working through his staff. We mentioned Daryl Tapp, who's a defensive assistant now. And we mentioned Tracy Clays, who's now the linebackers coach. Both those guys will not be coaching any any of these positional units, they're still getting acquainted to Virginia Tech and life as a coach there um, and, and sitting in on meetings. So right now with Bud Foster in his last game, he kind of has, uh, you know, uh, different guys doing different things. Graduate assistants, Jack Tyler filling in at linebackers as well. Uh, you know, Justin Hamilton coaching up the safeties, Pearson Prelude with the cornerbacks. How big of a concern is it that, you know, Wiles is gone, Mitchell is gone. It's a, it's a new staff, so to speak, in this final moment of preparation and for his last game, you think it's going to be a huge challenge for Bud Foster? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the big concerns. This is a um, this is a terrible matchup to be without to be swapping out a defensive line coach who has twenty five years of experience with a graduate assistant on the defensive line um, and Zach Sparber, um, and then to be also without your cornerbacks coach, um, they're not going to play as big a role in the passing game, clearly with how little Kentucky throws the ball, but they'll still be actively involved in in tackling Lynn Bowden, I'm sure. So not the best game to be down, you know, essentially two coaches who have coached the defense the entire year. So you got to wonder what the preparation has been like over the last three to four weeks, what practice has been like over the last four weeks. Um, you know, bowl games are always a crapshoot. And, you know, and who who does more with the four weeks in between just for this one game? And, um, and then I think you get into the game in terms of figuring out what's going on and um, what adjustments you need to make and all that stuff. How do you, how do you, if Virginia Tech is getting gashed at the line of scrimmage in the first quarter, how do they, how do they solve that by the third quarter? Basically, um, so I think it's a real concern in terms of they just don't have the coaching staff right now that would give you confidence and against the team that runs the ball fifty times a game. Yeah, absolutely, you're putting duct tape over over open wounds, uh, but. 
you know, looking at the staff, I think it might be a big deal in game. Like you mentioned, if they have to make adjustments, it's communicating with different folks and how to get those specific positional units ready to adjust. I think when you look at the preparation, maybe it's not the biggest thing in the world. Obviously, it's not ideal. But when you look at this Kentucky team, they do one thing. They run, right? So you're looking, you already know how you want to stop them if you're Bud Foster and you have a bit of extra time uh, to prepare those things. Um, and looking at the game plan in general, you still have Bud Foster, the mastermind, working through everything. And maybe missing Brian Mitchell isn't a big deal because they don't really throw the ball. Uh, <laughs> but like you said, Charlie Wiles and going to a GA after that. Of course, Zach Sparber has been, I believe, here two years. So, you know, he knows some of the nuances of, of teaching uh, what they need to do or, you know, relaying on what the game plan is. Uh, but yeah, I think that defensive line in particular, if they need to make adjustments in the game and practicing the last few weeks, I think, you know, that defensive line unit is where the main concern with this new coaching staff makeshift coaching staff is. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be a lot on Bud Foster, um, particularly with that defensive line. I mean, he had Charlie Wiles next to him for two and a half decades. I'm sure as far as making the adjustments they needed to do, it didn't take much communicating bef- between them to to make that happen. Um, but I think it's a diff- completely different case with a guy like Sparber, who's all of a sudden, you know, his defensive line's given up big yards in the second quarter, and Bud wants them to to switch something. You know, do they get it right, and can they can they stop it? Um, Based immediately during in in game, um, I think that's going to be put a lot of pressure on Bud, whereas he could trust Wiles to to make that tweak or make that adjustment and and trust it's going to get implemented. But he might have to go check on the defensive line to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, given that it's a new voice and a new a new defensive line, I mean, Sparber's been there, but it's certainly going to be different when he's kneeling in front of him on the sideline versus Wiles. 100%. Last thing regarding the defense, a few of the beat writers are at the practice right now in Charlotte. Unfortunately, we are not, but they were able to observe practice for a a few portions of it. And notice that Caleb Farley, in street clothes watching on, struggled with back spasms for the UVA game and was a big factor in that game, uh, was held out. Uh, many people wondering, is he holding out to go to the NFL? He goes on social media, says he's staying. But now, for this bowl game, he might be unavailable. The way it's looking, it looks like he will not play. Yeah, it sounded, even that, the article that Mike Barber wrote on Times-Dispatch when he told him that he was coming back, um, even that one, that was two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, it sounded like he was pretty on the fence about being able to play. And now here we are Friday afternoon, three days, four days before the game. And he's not practicing um, to start the week. So, you know, I think, I think he's a guy they trust and doesn't need much practice at this point. Um, But if he can't go (laughs) and hasn't been able to go much of December, I don't think, as physical a game as this is likely to be, then this is a likely that uh, he'll he would 
give it a go if he feels great on um, on Tuesday. Um, so we'll see. Far, I mean, he, his absence was clearly felt. I think against UVA um, in that I think that was the game where the safety struggled and Armani Chapman is going to be a good player and is he's already pretty good, but do Reggie Floyd and divine Diablo trust him as much as they trust Farley or are they trying to make sure that he's doing the right things and covering doing all basically getting the defense um, as much as Farley does. So we'll see if that has an impact. I mean, four weeks off will probably help Chapman and those guys in terms of like we were talking about with the preparation, but um, I mean, Farley's, all ACC first team corner, he would be a huge loss. Absolutely. And not just, you look at two facets of a bowl game. You have so much time to prepare for Kentucky. You know that they're going to run. Kentucky knows that you want to stop the run. You know, they can throw in some trick plays. They can throw in some passing plays. um, And definitely in those situations, you want a guy like Caleb Farley to play. The second thing is he's a physical corner. And I know he only has... 27 or so tackles on the year, which is roughly, you know, two and a half per game, which is nothing. But when you're talking about Lynn Bowden, a guy that wants to go off tackle, spread to the perimeter, having a guy that's 6'2", 207, you know, a huge physical upgrade over Chapman uh, on the boundary is a guy that can help contain him, a guy that's probably the fastest player on the Virginia Tech roster that can be able to compete in space with a guy, even if he's not making the tackle, he's at least setting the boundary for someone else like Devon Diablo or Reggie Floyd to come up and make the tackle. And like you said, that that consistency of having the same secondary for the entire year, and then all of a sudden you're switching out a key member for someone else, you know, that does factor in as well. Yeah, you think about it's going, I mean, Virginia Tech is going to expect a run on basically every play. So if you get a guy like Farley who is fast enough to beat a block basically to the spot and can break up a play in the backfield um, just by being aggressive. And then you think back to those runs by Perkins against UVA where he got loose and ran away from everybody. If Farley's on the field, knowing how fast Farley is, can he chase him down before he gets in the end zone? So, um, you know, that's why he's such a valuable player. And um, that's why he had a choice where he could have potentially declared for the draft after this year. So um, he's a big loss and it just puts a lot of pressure on Chapman and the safeties. And I mean, even more than they'll already face with this run deep run offense of Kentucky. Now I do want to switch things over to this Virginia tech offense and bringing in Kentucky's defense as well. You talk about such a prolific running game for Kentucky, but they're not a one trick pony. Their defense Very, very solid. Number 25 in total defense. Uh, A really big physical group. Again, SEC-type school. Uh, For them, you know, what catches my eye first is their behemoths of a defensive line. Uh, You look at Calvin Taylor, 6'9". 6'9", as a defensive tackle, would never make it onto Charlie Wiles' radar at that height. <laughs> and then uh, Quinton Bohanna at 361 pounds. So how do you how do you even get 
by these two defensive tackles. Yeah, uh, Virginia Tech's interior line, um, Brian Hudson, Doug Nestor, Lysita Smith, Austin Cannon, uh, they're going to have their work cut out for them. Um, Taylor, 6'9", 300. Uh, I read a story on him this week that he <laughs> his only offer before signing day was Temple. So that was a colossal miss just on everybody's. How did, how did nobody offer a 6'9 defensive tackle and give him a shot? Um, and then Bohana, 6'4", 361. His backup is 371 pounds. Um, poor Abule Adabi Fitzgerald is a mere 290 pounds and 6'6". Six six, so he's a twig. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he. I mean, that's that's definitely the position to watch um, in terms of them being able to just eat up space and make play. I don't think you're going to see Deshaun McLeese going in there too often. Um, Yikes! <laughs> and I think, given how big and disruptive they are, particularly in the middle of the defense, I know everybody's going to hate to hear this, but you're going to have to get to the edge quickly. And there's a play where you can start the wide receiver running laterally a sweeping motion a sweeping motion and hand trey turner and tavion robinson do it too it's it's a jet sweep like it's <laughs> you might see a handful of times in this game oh man and then moving further along um you look at the the linebackers cash daniel all-time name great name. mike linebacker uh and deandre square another guy that may be destined for the nfl yeah, I mean, de- so decent linebackers. I think Squares are leading tackler. Daniel's a senior. Um, probably Cash. Cash. It's the leader of the the defense, probably. Um, and then they they have a, a defensive end slash outside linebacker. So I guess he's the combo guy who can stand up and play a little linebacker. Or will be the defensive end. Josh Pash Cole, he's 6'3", 284. So he's a big boy as well. But, I mean... When you have that size we were talking about in the middle, taking up blockers, um, these guys have some room to run. So, you know, I think Brad Cordelson is going to have to get creative when he wants to throw the ball in terms of moving the pocket. Essentially, the misdirection kind of offense that we've seen with Hooker all year in terms of, you know, you're not going to be able to just drop them back and, give them three or three to five seconds to throw the ball down the field. Um, I think the tight ends are going to be huge in this game. And and then Hazleton and Turner are going to have to make plays on the outside when they have the opportunity. And then you look at their secondary, a very formidable unit. One that, you know, is, is excellent against the pass. Hendon Hooker going to have a tough day against this secondary. They're the fourth ranked pass defense in the country. Ah. Behind, uh, let me know if you've heard of these teams, uh, Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame. Um, so they're pretty pretty formidable, and it's actually pretty crazy that they're so good. They've they lost five of their defensive backs from last year, and then their and then one of their top guys, his name was Devonte Robinson, got hurt earlier this year. So they're basically starting this year with a brand new secondary and. Um, Turned in one of the best units in the country. Um, so, yeah, I think 
they landed this Juco guy, Brandon Eccles, who's a corner. Cedric Dort Jr. Another, this defense is loaded with names. Yusuf um, even, Corker, baby. Even their free safety, Yusuf Corker. Poor, poor Jordan Griffin is just a normal Joe Schmo there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they, they're very good. And when you think about, we've talked all year about Turner and Hazleton having a decisive edge at wide receiver to make plays. But clearly the secondary is talented enough to, to limit them. Um, but I certainly don't think Virginia Tech is going to shy away from giving them a chance. So we've discussed each positional unit, the defensive line, linebackers, very physical and big, and the secondary, extremely good at breaking up passes and shutting down the opposition's quarterback. What on earth does Brad Cornelson do to prepare this offense, this Virginia Tech offense, to attack? What is the point where you attack this Kentucky defense? I think it's going to be those, um, the, I think the linebackers, when you talk about, do you want to attack the middle of the defensive line with, you know, 700 pounds of human down there um, or the fourth ranked pass defense? In the secondary, I don't think either of those are option number one. I think the linebackers. So I think it's going to be a big day for Dalton Keene, James Mitchell. Um, if you can get Deshaun McLeese on those screens that they had working there in the middle of the year. Um, you know, I think they're going to target trying. I mean, that's the thing about the, the tech playmakers is it starts with Hazleton and Turner, but then. That means guys like Mitchell and Keene are your third and fourth and fifth options. So I think those can be where you can attack. And um, guys like Keene and certainly Mitchell can make the plays to win the game, I think. Yeah, and I think in order to get Mitchell and Keene going, and you didn't see too much of them against Virginia, Virginia Tech really needs to establish their run game, which is tough when you're talking about those bullies on the interior for Kentucky. Um, and I think a big plus is, again, with the session at the media session today, uh, you know, the beat writers were able to see uh, Jalen Holston back in pads running without a uh, designation on his jersey for injury. I think he's a huge plus here. I think if you have to establish the run and you're looking at guys like Deshaun McLeese and Keyshawn King, guys that are under 200 pounds and you're trying to force them down the gut, you know, it might be a little more palpable with a guy that's 225 pounds in Jalen Holston if his conditioning has caught up with him. Yeah, I mean, definitely a uh, what a story that would be if Jalen Holston comes back after missing. 12, 11 games and um, becomes the power back that they need here against these guys. But I think, you know, all cards are on the table. I think um, Dalton Keene at running back certainly, while exciting initially, (laughs) (laughs) uh, he's kind of like three yards in a cloud of dust there at running back when he gets the ball in handoff. So I think they would much prefer Holston. So, um, I think you'll see the full the full arsenal of running plays, and that includes the jet sweeps. That includes McLeese, um, Kashawn King. I'll be interested to see what he looks like after a month off. Um, and then certainly Hendon Hooker, and maybe even Quincy Patterson. I mean, 
you've had a month to uh, to scheme up something new. Certainly, Kentucky's probably working on the same thing. So, um, I, you touched on it. Getting the running game going is going to be huge, and figuring out some way to Hooker right now is not the quarterback to throw the ball 45 times a game and have success. He needs the play action to be effective. And for that to be effective, you got to run the ball. Absolutely. And I guess that was my initial point that in order to set up all that misdirection, you need the running game to work so that if you're going back for that handoff, the defense is biting on it. All of a sudden you slip out the tight ends and you have room to run. I think it's going to be a huge story of this game. Maybe another one is how Hendon Hooker himself runs the football. Obviously, he's a dual threat quarterback. The offense as a whole has done a lot better, but he's not a guy that's consistently running for 80 plus yards. Uh, He's a guy that, you know, is taking what's in front of him and making the right decisions, being careful with the football and really focusing on protection. Um, But maybe it's a type of game where you need a bit more out of him as a runner. Yeah, I mean, the UVA game, was pretty and they relied on him almost exclusively for running the football i mean he took a took a beating in that game and then he comes and then but they were still able to tee him up to get the situation where he ripped off the 50 yard touchdown run or whatever it was um so i think he's he's going to be a huge part of it on hooker i think probably the most encouraging thing about Hooker, and I think probably the most encouraging thing I've ever heard Justin Fuente say. He said about Justin about Hendon Hooker. Um, I pulled up the quote here. He says he just continues to be more comfortable. I don't know if efficient is the right word, but accurate throwing the ball to and mechanically continues to improve. You stand behind him at practice, and you figure out very quickly that he absolutely knows. The play may not work. The end result may not be positive, but you stand behind him and you know that he knows what's going on in all phases of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, as far as Justin Fuente goes, that's pretty um, effusive praise for that quarterback. That is huge praise. Um, so, I mean, we talked all year about how good he was taking care of the football, but it was always kind of laced with like this, is he the real deal kind of like especially when Virginia Tech went six and one there over a stretch from the Miami game to the Pittsburgh game, um, it's kind of like is this is this real? And I think that quote means he's the real deal. So if he continues to make that kind of progress to get that kind of praise from Justin Fuente, um, I think you got a lot have a lot of confidence that he's going to have a big game. Any final thoughts on Virginia Tech's offense, how they attack the Kentucky defense, or any last notes about the Kentucky defense before we move on to special teams? No, we're good. Okay. Special yeah, I know you want to get to special teams. Oh, this <laughs> is such a good matchup. Oscar Bradburn, Max Duffy. Max Duffy, a finalist for the Ray Guy. He won it, didn't he? He did win it because he's the Australian from the SEC. I remember I when they said Australian punter was the initial line that they used to announce that he won the award. And you thought it was going to be Oscar Bradburn. And still, I believe that Oscar could somehow come from off the tallied votes when they whatever said the Aust- sheet was and come as Australian a dark punter, horse. You got your hopes up that they yeah. were going to bring him back from like backstage. I said I wasn't going to watch it, and I completely watched it at the college football <laughs> awards. But 
anyways, you know, Oscar Bradburn, we all know what he is at this point, a weapon for Virginia Tech, as quoted by Justin Fuente. And Max Duffy, Ray Guy Award winner. It's going to be a great day if it gets to fourth down. If you like punting, this is your game. Um, the Super Bowl of college football punting. The, I mean, two, I think Duffy's number one, obviously, in yards per punt, which seems like the Ray Guy voters finally figured out that it's not hard to determine who the number one punter in the country is. Um, and then Bradburn, I think, finished at number eight overall. So two, two of the best punters in the country going toe-to-toe, literally. Uh, <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> you like that? Uh, that was really good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, that's, I mean, the thing you can expect is that they're both going to be, both offenses are probably going to be starting inside the 10 or 15 yard line every every possession so um it's going to take long drives probably which makes any turnover in the middle of the field all that more um valuable so um we'll see what happens i mean i think oscar if anything it's even crazier that they're both from australia yeah it's insane (laughs) so we got some bragging rights um on the line at least for Australian punters. This is the real Ray Guy Award right here in the Belk Bowl. They the should've... winner of this game should win, should take home the trophy. Right. They should have just been like, we're we're not handing this out tonight. We're <laughs> yeah. handing it out on the field in the Belk Bowl. <laughs> and uh, just looking, speaking of all names, Mark Ruffalo, the actor, is one of the kickers <laughs> for... <laughs> <laughs> for Kentucky here. I, I saw that, and uh, <laughs> he's one of two kickers that he used, so he needs... Uh, so I actually think Virginia Tech, all seriousness, has an advantage there in terms of the kicking game. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> His name is actually Matt Ruffalo, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Very close to Mark Ruffalo. Um, and then the last thing, which I think is actually... You know, all joking aside about just constantly harping on the punting for special teams. What I think could be cool, and you alluded to this in your preview, is that in terms of kick returns and punt returns, obviously for Virginia Tech, it's gone a lot more exciting with Keyshawn King and especially Tavion Robinson, who, by the way, was named a PFF All-American <laughs> For punt returns, even though he only, what, he was in that position for four games, the last four games of the year. Uh, But obviously very exciting. A a guy that many people wrote off, even though, you know, with his 4.8 speed, alleged. um, But a guy that's definitely made a difference uh, stepping in for Ezekiah Grimsley on the punt return. But when you look at Kentucky, you mentioned this. Lynn Bowden could be a returner. He was the returner. Uh, before he switched to quarterback for the Wildcats. How cool would it be having your quote-unquote quarterback returning kicks and punts? Yeah, I I mean, I don't see any reason not to do it at this point. Um, The guy's already declared for the NFL draft. It's one game. You know, realistically, kick return, punt return, that's what? Seven, eight plays of the game? Um I think he probably really wants to do it, and it's certainly a way to show. I mean, he's one of the best players in Kentucky football history. Certainly a cool way to just 
clear the deck and clear the floor for him, so to speak. But, you know, they didn't really get much out of the other guys um, over the since he, you know, went to quarterback. So I think probably the only concern is, like, do you have to run the Wildcat with another running back for one play after a punt return or something? But then most punt returns have a TV timeout on the other side of them. So, like... If Virginia Tech ever had a player with Lynn Bowden, like Lynn Bowden playing quarterback, and it was his last game, and he'd been the punt returner, he'd been the kick returner, and it was just one exhibition game. Like, the Belk Bowl doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, I'd give him the ball every single time. Yeah. See what he can do. See if he can lead in punt return yardage, kick return yardage, passing, rushing, and maybe even receiving if they have a trick play. I mean, bowl games get so weird. Like, they they might it might as well they might as well give it a shot. Um, I remember the 2003 Insight Bowl. Virginia Tech played Cal. Aaron Rodgers is in Cal, and D'Angelo Hall had some wild punt or kick return. Marcus Vick called a touchdown pass. Um, he was the backup quarterback who also. I mean, it was the crazy escape. So let Bowden. I'm I'm gonna lobby for Bowden to be the punt returner and kick returner this game. And and speaking for things that are maybe non-traditional that we'd like to see, what would you like to see out of this game? And it, it could be either Kentucky or Virginia Tech, you know, different formations, anything that spices this game up a little bit. Uh yeah, I wanna see a Tavian Robinson pass. Um we saw it I think once this year. He's also he's a southpaw, so he's got he's he's got he's got that going for him, which you know makes everything look better. Um, I think the one time was against Georgia Tech on the goal line, right? Um, there was the uh, there was the one to Deshaun McLeese. Where oh he yeah, caught it <laughs> yeah, one handed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I want I want to see that again. Dust it off. Um, you know, if you're gonna have to run some jet sweeps, you might as well keep them off balance with a little pass, maybe. You know. Yeah, I think uh, for me personally, I mean, I could go ahead and say anything with Oscar Bradburn. Of course, special teams plays are always awesome. Fake field goals, fake punts, whatever. But one formation I would absolutely love to see, and we're talking about this big physical defensive front, who's like the most physically imposing person you can think of on the offense. Maybe it's Dalton Keene. But aside from him, Quincy Patterson. The guy that literally looks like the Hulk and Mark Ruffalo. Um, but you, seeing him in a formation where he could be maybe the running back with Hendon Hooker as quarterback and running the read option, I mean, that would keep the defense honest. It would keep some of the safeties on their hind heels and, you know, maybe even sprinkle in a little Quincy Patterson throwing motion there but i think that would be absolutely awesome if if they were able to display that if we could get like quincy patterson with a head of steam running into <laughs> what's the guy's name the defensive tackle uh quinton quentin bohana um see a collision there that'd be that'd be nice um but yeah i mean They've had four weeks to to work on it, and you know that Hendon Hooker and Quincy Patterson uh, fool around after practice with 
different stuff and then go to Brad Cornelson and are like, Coach Brad, look at this. And then they run some play that they drew up on their own. So <laughs> they might as well put it in. And then Brad is just like, guys, that's really cool and all, but let's stick to the jet sweep. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> like, that's great. That looks exactly like a jet sweep that I'll call. <laughs> I'm definitely going to add that to the end of my playbook. But yeah. Um, yeah. And again, look, it's a moment for Quincy Patterson to see what he has. Maybe throw him in there for like a trick play or something where he can throw the ball, get him involved, get him motivated for this prep that they've had for the past month that these are actually meaningful reps. And you hear a lot of the players and they're talking about how 2020 is going to be a special year. And in order to do that, you really need to have competition at every position. Hendon Hooker talked about it. He expects to have a quarterback battle next fall. And everyone's talking about how good Hendon Hooker is and how he's changed the offense. He's still going to have to battle against Braxton Burmeister, the Oregon transfer, against Quincy Patterson. So it's going to be a heated battle in that quarterback room. And I think, you know, they've been very good about it, Quincy Patterson and Hendon Hooker this year, on taking care of one another. And I think, you know, it'd be a perfect opportunity to reward that camaraderie, reward them for working so hard, you know, get get a chance for both of them to play, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt Quincy Patterson's a great teammate, too, and how he's handled. I mean, he was the number three quarterback entering this year. Um, how he handled that UNC game, how he handled that Notre Dame game. Um, and then what was the other game he came in? The, the Georgia Tech game, he comes in and picks up a big third down. So, I mean, he's handled everything great this year. Clearly, there's more competition to come that will lead to some decision-making by people in that quarterback room probably before the end of their Virginia Tech eligibility. Um, but I think as a reward, as a, you know, he's a guy that has done everything right this year and you had four weeks to figure something out. Um, you know, I certainly think it's worth a shot. And again, not just because he's been a good teammate. Of course, you can reward people that in certain ways, but he's actually a good player and he's someone that could make a difference in the ground game against this big Kentucky front. So that would be very cool to see. Anything else you'd like to see out of Virginia Tech or Kentucky for that matter? Uh I'm I'm curious to see what Kashawn King looks like. I think with a with a week, month off and um I think he's the guy to watch this offseason in terms of what he could do in 2020. Um I think that could start this game and um i think he's a guy that a lot of people have high expectations for and he's gotten a little bit of time this year and looks pretty decent in it so i'd be curious if he can put together some kind of breakout game here i'm looking at jr walker uh safety freshman has not played uh four-star guy uh late flip from nc state actually um but a, a guy that Justin Fuente has publicly said will play in this game. Now, I don't know if he's ready to potentially take over for Divine Diablo. Maybe what they meant by that is special teams. But I think it's really interesting. You look at the one key player that needs to be replaced for 2020 is Reggie Floyd. And I think there's a lot of combinations. A lot of people want to see Devin Hunter immediately inserted into that rover position that Reggie Floyd has. But 
if you get a guy like J.R. Walker who maybe provides, you know, something different, another element of, of you know, pass defense in the back end and can take over at free safety, maybe moving Divine Diablo to Rover, uh, just seeing the different options and not just making it a, a clear-cut thing where you're bringing in a backup that still, Devin Hunter has played a lot better, uh, but still very unproven. Yeah, I think we could get into this in future podcasts before next year, but it's going to be very interesting to see if the secondary and how Virginia Tech plays and the positions and the responsibilities change at all with Justin Hamilton taking over with a guy like Tracy Clays coming in with his experience with a new cornerbacks coach. You know, right now there's a free safety and a rover and a whip who plays more like a linebacker than a corner. And then there's a nickel back. You know, is there, could there be a three linebacker formation? Could there be, is the, is the is the whip more like a corner now? Is the rover more like a strong? You know, we don't. We just don't know what's going to happen, um, and that'll change, and that'll dictate if Diablo moves, where Chamari Connor plays, what, where Armani Chapman as the third nickel or third cornerback um, slots in. So that's a that's a future Virginia Tech question. But yeah, lot lot going on in the defensive secondary, especially at the safety position. Um, after this after this game yeah and of course we'll get into a lot of that what Justin Hamilton might run in the future Uh, but for now uh, you know just looking at what I'd like to see I I guess it's just predominantly about those younger guys depth players that maybe have a role on the team for next year seeing if they can somehow make it into the game maybe uh, you know Jaden uh, payout playing in in a kick returning role, you know, different things like that. But uh, you know, just generally players that maybe we haven't seen this year make an impact in this game. Two two guys that I'll be for, I guess, all of the defense events we talked about it earlier. I think from a tactical standpoint about you know setting the edge, not overcommitting, all that stuff, but. It was a pretty clear indicator what happened on signing day where Virginia Tech wants to get a lot better. Um, so I, I don't think it would be lost on E.I. Adams, JVN Becton, Taiwan Garbett, and Emmanuel Belmar that Virginia Tech is trying to get better at defensive end. So I'm sure they're on high alert that they need to pick it up and they need to play a lot better, especially... Adams and Becton who haven't and, and Jalen Griffin's the fifth guy that that aren't starters right now um, where they have some competition coming in um, you know they obviously don't have Charlie Wiles coaching them right now but you know they've probably done a little bit of work with Daryl Tapp but I think there's probably some extra motivation this game um, to make a statement about you know that they're they're here to stay too Let's quickly run into some predictions. How do you see this one playing out on uh, New Year's Eve? So, Bowden is really, really, really good. Um, Virginia Tech has struggled against running quarterbacks often in recent um, recent memory, and they are down a couple coaches on the defensive coaching staff. Um, I think. I think. Points are going to be scored. You know, I don't, I think 
I think I have this one in the third, upper, lower 30s, upper 20s. Um, I think Virginia Tech can stop Bowden a little bit. I don't think they're going to completely shut him down. Um, and I think really when it comes down to it is that they're going to run the ball 40 to 50 times. They're going to control the clock, wear you down in the second half, and I think that's going to be hard to compete with. Um, for Virginia Tech. I think it'll be a close game, but I think I'm going to go Kentucky taking this one um, 33 to 27. Wow. And that actually uh, springs up a question. You talk about them running so much, and I guess we have this entire podcast, but what do you think would be successful for Bud Foster's defense? Like, what's the number to keep Lynn Bowden at? Because you figure he's going to run numerous times and is you know assured almost to break a hundred yards but where do you see that threshold of that was a good job containing him versus he just did whatever he wanted i think if he gets up up over two 200 yards you're getting into dangerous territory um i think it's very likely that he gets right near there um considering how much he runs and it's his last game, and they're going to be going after it and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think if he gets up over 200 yards, you're running into the territory of it's just being his game, him dominating the game, and um, and that's before you factor in whatever they get out of the running backs. So um, I think they got to keep him under 200 to have a chance. Yeah, so when I look at this game, the two trends I noticed from both sides, at least offensively, Justin Fuente and Stoops, both love to control the clock. They're in the top 20, both teams, of controlling time of possession. It's a big stat for both teams. I think they really want to have prolonged drives where they're constantly chunking yardage, manipulating the play clock, uh, and really just trying to keep the ball out of the other offense's hands. So I think in that case, I don't see it being a super high-scoring game. I think it's going to be very methodical. Um, and obviously, the the reason I asked that question, I do see Lynn Bowden getting to 200 yards, maybe running 40 times. Uh, but I think he will find success on the ground against, you know, not, not as physically imposing of a defense, defensive front seven in Virginia Tech. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough day for Bud Foster's defense. I don't think the scoring totals will be crazy high. Um, so I think Kentucky will score right around 27 points, I think, for Virginia Tech on offense. I'm curious to see if they bring anything out. Like you said, it's a lot of establishing the run, maybe a lot of jet sweeps. Um, <laughs> but I don't see Hendon Hooker just flinging the ball downfield. Uh, I think they do a an okay job of establishing the run, maybe getting towards 200 yards as a team, uh, maybe getting a few sparks from Dalton Keene and James Mitchell uh, in the red zone. And ultimately, I see Virginia Tech scoring 20 points. So I'm going Wildcats 27, Virginia Tech 20. Mm. So, I, so I went up right after your question to me just now and went to – Lynn Bowden's rushing stats per game. Uh, the wins, so throw out the Tennessee Martin game and throw out the Vanderbilt game, who's was trash this year. Um, the games that Bowden was that quarterback that they won 
Arkansas, he had 196 yards. Missouri, he had 204 yards. Louisville, he had 284 yards. Wow. So there's that 200-yard marker for success. And then the two games they lost, Georgia and Tennessee. Against Georgia, he had 99 yards. And Tennessee, only had 114 yards. Only. Right, right. <laughs> Still over 100 <laughs> yards. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the – that's – if you can keep them under even 150, I think Virginia Tech has a chance. But if he starts getting up over there, um, I think I think you got to give the edge to the to the Wildcats. The dude had 12.91 yard, yards per carry against Louisville. So, um, and that's the game where they nearly had 600 yards of of rushing offense, correct? Yeah, yeah, they had some absurd amount. Um, I don't think Louisville's any good at defense, but. Uh, yeah, they dominated that game. They won 45-13. He had four touchdowns on the ground. So um, certainly playing with a lot of confidence, you would say. Anything else to talk about in regards to the Belk Bowl before we put a bow on it, a Bowden on it? Wow. Very. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do want to say that this is the last Belk Bowl ever as Belk will be leaving as the title sponsor if you don't follow their twitter account it's a pretty good follow you only have a couple days left to do it um but just such an honor to be playing in a historic game as the last belt bowl and at least for the near future the last belt bowl the last bud bowl bud foster's last game Regardless of what happens, just appreciate the sight of seeing him on the sidelines and coaching because this is the last time out. 60 more minutes and that's it. We'll say, given the success that Bobby Bowden's teams had against Bud Foster over the years, it might be fitting that a guy named Bowden sends him off a similar way. So something to keep an eye on, and I'm sure that's... A terrible joke that'll be made on Twitter <laughs> at some point. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Last segment. We'll do it quickly. We didn't ask questions this time. Uh, we didn't know when we were going to record. Again, as you can tell, I'm still very stuffed up and getting over this cold. But I reached out to Evan, see if he could hop on today's podcast. He could not. But he left us with three questions. So I guess we'll call it the wondering G. Watkins. Uh, his three questions. We'll run through them quickly. Uh, the first one, why does Miami suck? They don't have a quarterback, and they have a bunch of players that think they are better than they are and haven't put in the work to be good. Yeah. I mean, the offense was abysmal this season. Um, and, you know, it's kind of sad to think about uh, this question obviously comes after their walk on Independence Bowl loss to Louisiana <laughs> Tech. Miami got shut out 14 0 by Louisiana Tech. And yes, you heard that correctly. Miami was such a big turning point for Virginia Tech this season. And then you look at the remainder of their schedule, they finished with a losing record, they lost to FIU. And how big it was for Virginia Tech, because at that point, you know, they didn't completely crumble and give up. They were still considered one of the better teams in the ACC Coastal, um, albeit it was early on. 
but but for being such a defining turning point to what they ended up now is pretty comical to look back on. <laughs> that game was kind of the end of Jaron Williams as a good quarterback. I think before that game, he had he hadn't thrown a pick yet, and he threw three or four in the first half before he got pulled. And then Nikosi Perry comes in and throws for like 450 yards and almost leads him back. But then they they just couldn't get the quarter. Like what? I, they're not any good at quarterback. Um, There's no rhythm there. They put in Tate Martell for the bowl game after, and Nikosi Perry was all of a sudden the third string quarterback. So Miami first needs to find a quarterback. Well, first needs to find an offensive coordinator because they just fired him, yeah. uh, Dan Enos. Their offensive line is atrocious, too. That is something that we knew going into the game. I thought their defense was good enough to be contenders in the ACC. I think they've been dealt an unfair hand, and it's kind of a shame that when you look at their linebacker unit, they're on a 6-7 and seven team because it's one of the best linebacker units I've ever seen. Um, but again, you know, with all the good on defense, there's just not enough. You can't just rely on a defense. You need to be able to put up some points, put up some yardage, and between not having a good enough quarterback to run the show, not having an offensive identity, and maybe having one too many four stars that think they're destined for the NFL when maybe they aren't, you know, it just came crashing down in Coral Gables. And I know it brought up a good debate on Twitter. Do stars matter? Because once Louisiana Tech beat Miami, and I know they showed a graphic, it was like one four-star transfer on Louisiana Tech versus 50 uh, combined four and five stars on Miami. Stars definitely matter, in my opinion. I think that in order for stars, guys with four-star designations, to be successful, you need to have a system in place. You need to have some identity and and some direction. And I think that's where the coaching has kind of failed Miami. I know that they had problems with their defensive quarter, coordinator. They just fired their offensive coordinator. There wasn't direction on either side of the football. And if you're just plugging in guys and saying, go get it, I mean, no one's going to be on the same page. So stars definitely matter, in my opinion. I'm curious to hear your opinion, though. Yeah, I mean, they definitely matter. The last thing I'll say on this is it can the the future of the program can flip pretty quickly based on a quarterback. Um, If you look at what North Carolina did this year, they're going to get all of the preseason hype next year because of Sam Howell. And they went six and six in the regular season, um, and that was that was a year after they went what two and ten. Yeah. Um, so Miami's starting at six and seven, six and six. No, overall. don't hype them up. Don't hype them up. I'm just saying, all it takes is a good quarterback um, to get. I mean, a little positive mojo going if they want to stick with it. Absolutely. Second question from the wandering Evan G. Watkins: Any hot takes on sitting out bowl games? I don't have any issues with elite NFL prospects sitting out bowl games that don't matter. Do you have a problem with Trayvon Hill sitting out the bowl game for Miami? Yes. Um, (laughs) I do. I think as a prospect with a checkered pass in terms of um, in terms of his 
conduct and his player discipline and all of that. Teams, NFL teams are going to do a lot of due diligence on their guys and they're going to find everything. And if you're Trayvon Hill, I think you you should do everything possible to make it look like you're a team guy and to show that you are committed to the team and working hard on that stuff. And to, I mean, I don't think he's a first round pick or anything like that. Um, so even, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go play in Shreveport either, but um, I think for a guy like that, he's been essentially kicked off Virginia Tech's team, sat out a year, had some troubles back in high school that they will, the NFL will do their due diligence and find out about. So I think he should have been, that's one of those guys that you play, even if you don't want to play, you suck it up and be a team player. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think in terms of sitting out bowl games, if you know that you're going to be a first round pick, or uh, then I think it's acceptable. I think, you know, beyond that, it gets, it gets a little tough because, you know, the chances of you getting injured in a game like this are, you never know. You never know. You could be hurt in training. You could be hurt anywhere. You could be hurt getting milk from the grocery store. So I think it shows a lot of character. A guy like Lynn Bowden, he is declaring for the NFL draft. He might be a second round pick. He is playing quarterback and probably taking 60 snaps on offense and he's going to be hit, but he's doing it for his team. I think that speaks highly of his character. I think that will help him in the interview process of the NFL draft. And I think it could even raise his stock a little bit, to be quite honest. Um, so I don't have any hot takes about it. On the on the contrary, I will say for Trayvon Hill, I don't know if he's going to make it into the NFL. I don't see him as a seven round, maybe at the seventh round, six, late six. Somewhere in the seventh round, he could be drafted. But I think it would be a cool story to tell your kids, hey, I sat out of my bowl game because I was preparing for the NFL draft. <laughs> that is the uh, bad. That is the only now. thing. That is the only thing I can say about sitting out a bowl game when you have no business sitting out of a bowl game. Yeah. Well, if and if you if your team's playing for something, like if you're in the playoff, basically, is what I'm saying. You shouldn't sit out games. But yeah. but. And if you're like a first round quarterback on some scrub team that's playing some scrub bowl, yeah, sit out. You don't you don't need to play that game and risk anything like that. But um yeah, for those like third and fourth round picks, I mean the, so much happens between now and April that like you might go from being a third round pick right now to a seventh round pick or undrafted yeah. or something like that. So um particularly when you're being drafted to play football. I think in those situations, you should play as much football as possible. Now, last thing, do you think, do you think anyone has sat out of the college football playoffs yet? Don't think so. I think they would be writ mercilessly. Yes. <laughs> mercilessly <Absolutely>. for it. <laughs> Absolutely. I if was Chase Young came out and said he was sitting out. Um, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, there would be people who would say good for him. He's not getting paid and he's about to get paid millions and millions of dollars. Um, but still, that's no fun. I mean, you're playing for a national championship. Yeah, that's the most fun you can have. The last question from Evan. This is his question. I swear, how high would Bradburn be selected if he left right now? 
you know, I think the Redskins could talk talk themselves into it in the third or fourth round. Um, I think there's a lot of other stupid NFL teams that would pick a punter. Stupid. Pretty... <laughs> Taking away how good he is, you, you shouldn't be taking punters early when you could be taking other more valuable positions. Or specialists such as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2016 when they took Roberto Aguayo out of Florida State in the second round. And that did not work out for them. He's not in the league anymore. <laughs> Correct. And, and you could have picked, you know, a defensive end that, you know, could rush the passer or, you know, a wide receiver. Somebody that can score a touchdown over somebody who scores three points. So the guy I look at for Oscar Bradburn's pro comparison is Michael Dixon, a guy that left early for the NFL, got drafted in the fifth round uh, by Seattle. I think if Oscar left now, Dixon was unbe- he was the MVP of his bowl game. That's how good he was. And he um, played in the didn't sit out. He didn't sit out. Um, <laughs> and so if Bradburn were to leave, I would say – I think he would actually get drafted. I, I honestly believe if he left right now, he'd be drafted, but I don't think it would come before the seventh round. Uh, yeah, the other guy I'm looking at is Brad Wing, who declared for the NFL draft. He's the LSU punter. He's very good, but he went undrafted. So I think it would be like, you know, in your fantasy football draft when you wait until the last round and then pick your kicker. It would be like, you know. I take Greg the leg Zerline in round 13 every single year. Just saying. If a, if a GM thinks like me, which they probably don't because then they would be fired, maybe they pick Oscar Bradburn a little early. Maybe. you could. I could see like Belichick trading brand up. Brand value. Think about the brand value. Belichick trades up into the seventh <laughs> round to draft Bradburn. <laughs> Swaps picks, player to be named, cash considerations. Yeah. Gets Bradburn. Um Moves up for a future seventh a pick swap at three years and some like supplemental draft pick. The right to 5% of Tom Brady's autographs. Right? Yeah. All right. That'll do it for us today. Doug, any final thoughts, any final words before the new year? Just thanks to Evan for those outstanding questions. Yeah. Thank you so much, Evan, for, for wondering the wondering G Watkins. But uh, that will do it for us. Uh, to anyone making it to the game, hopefully you can use this as some material while you drive down to Charlotte. If you're flying, save it on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you'd like. And we'll see you next year. Happy New Year.